So here's the deal. I had someone come in the back of service this morning, and they go, we pulled in the parking lot. There's plenty of parking, and there, there's, like, nobody here this morning. And this is the weird thing. It, it's true. I didn't even know if we were going to have a bass player till like, last night at, like, 6 o'clock, because everybody's gone. And so, like, we better do something. Everybody likes that acoustic thing. Woohoo! So we kind of... <laughs> I, I, I don't know if it's like subconsciously I'm freaking out about this, but I actually had a nightmare about this service last night. <laughs> so if it goes bad, I'm a prophet. <laughs> I will give your lotto numbers to you after service. <laughs> uh, welcome to Element. If we're really not like that, really. Uh, if, you, if you're new, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are also sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. You have a smartphone, you download the app, it's called Uversion. Uh, you click on live, it'll bring us up by GPS in your smartphone. You will get all the notes, the verses, and the questions that are on the back of the sermon notes as well. Uh, again, I just want to reiterate uh, what Jonathan said about the newcomer party this Friday. If you are newer to Element, you feel like you haven't connected that well yet, you should come to the newcomer party. There'll be a lot of us there. You'll, you'll either say, they're really crazy, I'm never going back. Or you'll say, hey, they're just like me, and then it'll be great, it'll be lots fun. Uh, the second thing I want to tell you about before we start is we do an email update every week. A lot of times people say, I can't remember the announcements and all the stuff that's going on. Every week on Wednesday, if I'm on the ball, we send out an email update and it tells you all the stuff that's going on around Element, reminds you of some other things that maybe we don't announce on Sunday mornings. And so if you want to be on the email update, you can actually fill, fill out one of those connect cards in the back of your chair and just put your name and email address, say put me on the email update, or you can just email info at ourelement.org and say put me on the email update, or you can actually click on something on our website and sign up for the email update. A lot of stuff. Why don't you guys stand there and read to God's word. Uh, this is Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 and 20, and says, But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we would be a people who understand that the things in our lives have been sifted through your hands, and that we are a people who are called to walk in your ways. And though sometimes we don't understand the situations that we are in, you do, because as our God, you lead us through these things. So I ask that you teach us to trust and hope in who you are, so that we would truly become your people. Amen. Have a seat. So we are doing the series called The People of Hope. These are actually shorter messages. So, hey, happy Christmas present early. In uh, January, we're going to hit the book of Genesis, and they are going to be longer again. I cannot seem to make them shorter. I'm trying, but... Somebody first service was like, yay! And I'm like, oh, okay, one of you. That's, uh, that, that's wonderful. Last week we did the groundwork of uh, what a people of hope kind of are supposed to start to look like. Uh, I usually like to teach through books of the Bible, but occasionally do a topical series. This is one of those. Uh, because we kind of get the feeling that there's a lot of doom and gloom out there from a lot of people and where we want to just discard all hope and kind of sit and wallow in a place where there, there is no hope. But God calls us to be a people who constantly hope in who he is. I want to tell you, things in our world, that they do look bad. If you, if you are an Apple fan, you know, they, they introduced the new iPhone last week, what it's going to be, and it's a piece of garbage. And so you're like, oh, I'm so sad. Steve Jobs, your icon just died. Oh, bummer. You know, this, when the whole election cycle's coming up, we're all going to want to hang ourselves, right? Because, 
You get all that mail in the, in the mailbox. You know, in, in our world, things can look bleak and bad and scary, but we are called to be a people of hope because we have a greater hope. Uh, the proof text I hope that you guys walk out here by the end of the series with and you have memorized is Romans 12, 12. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. That's, that's what we want. That's what we want uh, you and I to be as a people of God. Unfortunately, that, that is not how Christians always live their lives. It's difficult sometimes. But wh- what I think happens is why we lose hope is that we always focus on ourselves. We make church about ourselves. We make gospel community about ourselves. We make our life all about ourselves. And when we do, we lose focus on who Christ is. And just like Peter we looked at last week, we start to sink. So I'm going to give you some portraits of hope through the through this series, and hopefully you'll see that they had it worse off than you do, <laughs> and they still had hope. Uh, anybody learn the story of Lewis and Clark in school? Anybody? Okay, good. Uh, Lewis and today isn't about Lewis and Clark, but I'm going to use them to launch off where we're going. Lewis and Clark. It's an amazing story of undaunted courage, undaunted hope. Uh, in 1803, what happens is the United States purchases essentially the rest of the United States from France and then Louisiana purchase. Uh, it's funny because it's it's like Americans have always been. We bought this thing and did not know precisely what we were buying. France didn't know what they were actually selling. It's like yay, we bought something we don't know what it is. So a few weeks after we purchased. Just this, Thomas Jefferson had Congress appropriate a whopping $2,500 to do this expedition. In a message to Congress, Jefferson writes this, an intelligent officer with 10 or 12 chosen men might explore the whole line even to the Western Ocean. Yeah, you'd think. If you, if you ever get a chance, do you read some books that have some original journal entries from Lewis and Clark or some of the people that went with them? I'd recommend if you can get a copy of those, you read them. I will warn you when you do read them, though, Noah Webster didn't come out with his dictionary until 1828, and so the grammar is really bad. There wasn't standardized spelling and anything, so you might be like, what does that word actually mean? But it's great. You, you should all read it. They, they had years of hunger and fatigue and desertion and enemies and illness and death. All of the information ha- they had led them to believe that they'd reach a place called the Continental Divide. Then Lewis and Clark believed once they got there, they'd travel half a day, get on the Columbia River, and this river would then take them to the Pacific Ocean with all of the hard part behind them. So they believed they'd actually reached this place, and Lewis climbs the hills to walk up and see the river that would take them to the Pacific Ocean. And you know what he looks up and sees? The Rocky Mountains. It's like, oh, what the freak is that? You know, that's, that's kind of what he does. And this, this is kind of like, you know, in, in the end, the Rockies would be their supreme triumph, but they didn't know that at the time. And on this side of the Rockies, they're just hoping for a quick trip. And this is typically like you and I. We will launch into things in our lives full of hope. This is like we looked at last week with Peter walking on the water. But then reality sets and obstacles come up. A conflict arises. People let us down. Maybe something takes more effort or more time than we thought it would. I mean, what do you do when you're in a place where you think you've got it all done and, oh, thank God, and then you look up and there's mountains still in front of you? That's the worst than anything you've actually come across so far. What happens next? The question is, do you lose hope or do you trust in God and realize things are now just going to get a little more interesting? There's a field of social science. It's called resiliency. And they look at people and what makes them be able to hope again. And they look at people who survived traumatic ordeals. They looked at 3,000 people uh, who were POWs from brainwashing in Korea, 550 POWs from Vietnam, 52 hostages from Iran, World War II concentration camps, people who were in crippling accidents, people who lost siblings or children. And they found that people typically respond in two ways. Number one, they give up, and this is the expected response. Everybody just kind of gives up and says, I'm just not going to do it anymore. But the second response is they found some people actually learned to hope and that enlarged their capacity to handle all the problems that came their way. 
But the question is, you know, what makes the difference in that? How do you face these obstacles? The answer for you and I as believers, we trust in who Christ is, and that brings us hope. If you have a Bible, open to Genesis chapter 37. We're going to look at a guy named Joseph. You probably heard this story a hundred times. Again, like Peter last week walking on the water, you're going to get this 101 times today. Then we hit Genesis, you'll get 102 times, and you'll like it. Uh, Joseph is a guy. He, we're going to look at some hope in his life because he had to endure a lot of stuff. And on the other side, he came out trusting God when things looked most bleak. Uh, Joseph is a good news, bad news story. Uh, he has hope, and then things keep trying to crush that hope. He has tragedy to, to triumph to tragedy to triumph to tragedy to something. Good news, bad news stories are like that, that old story of those, like those two baseball lovers who make a pact that whoever dies first, and if they, they get to heaven, they get to, they're going to write back and tell the other one you know, what heaven's like and if there's baseball there. So one of them dies, and, the, and, the other, and so he writes a little note back, and he says, Hey, heaven's great, and there's baseball. I got bad news. You're pitching on Friday. So, I don't know why that's bad news, but, you know. Whatever. But just the story is like this. We looked at it in Esther, so I'm not going to belabor too much of the point, but I'm going to try and make you guys work through this with me a little bit, so we're going to do some yays and boos, right? So give me a yay. Yay. Give me a boo. Okay, so ready? So Joseph was his dad's favorite. Yay. Yay. But his brothers hated him for it. Oh, hold on. We were going to give you things, but it's coming. Boo. Next one. Okay, here we go. We're back. So Joseph dead. Technology. It's our nemesis. <laughs> Joseph's dad gives him a nice coat. His brothers rip it off. They cover it with blood, pretend he's dead, and sell him into slavery. That is a boo. He lands a great job for a slave in charge of an entire estate. The boss's wife thinks he's good looking and makes a pass at him. First service was like some kid, he's all, yay! <laughs> yeah, you would think, right? All right. He refuses the pass that's made at him. She gets mad, claims he tried to rape her. So, oh, you two guys are quicker than the guy with the button in the back. There's no sexual harassment attorneys in Egypt at this point. In jail, Joseph interprets a dream for a butler who gets released, and Joseph thinks that's going to allow him to get released because he will remember him. But the butler forgets and Joseph sits in jail two more years. How is it going to end? It's like you got the melodrama, right? Ding, 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 ding. You ever been there? Yeah. Okay, good. All right. Yeah. And people think, well, if it ends bad, nothing's worth it. If it ends good, then everything gets redeemed. I will tell you, even if in our mind sometimes things end bad, it's usually good because it's in the purpose and the plan of God. John Ortberg once wrote that Joseph's life is marked by the different robes that he wore. I think in one sense it's actually true because the first robe he gets he wears as a boy. This robe is chosen for him by his father. Genesis 37 starting in verse 3. Now Israel, that's his dad, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was a son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him so this is like if you're growing up and you have a sibling and your parents are always going why can't you be like 
so and so, and you're like, I hate that. That's boo. Yeah, that's that's Joseph right there. His, he's his father's favorite. His brothers all know it. He's the one his dad is proud of, and so his dad gives him a coat to show it. And Joseph is cocky. He wears this thing around all the time. It's like he gets a hand tailored Superman's warehouse. His brother gets brothers get like Kmart blue light specials, and that's what they walk around in. This culture, clothing equaled status, and so Joseph wears this robe. He's special. He's not going to be like his brothers. He's going to be different. He's loved better than everybody else, and he proves it to them by what he wears. Now, besides this, Joseph also has some dreams. Genesis 37, verse 5. Now, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. So what could this dream be? He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheep arose and stood upright. Behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheep. This means that they bow down to him and they serve him. So he has this dream. He's wearing this robe, and he goes, Oh, do I get the great robe? you're all going to serve me. Isn't that great? Not so much. Verse 8, his brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. I mean, God does have some amazing things for Joseph in his life. And Joseph has this dream. And he starts telling everybody about it. He's like, isn't this so wonderful for me? His brothers say no. Joseph is then attacked by his brothers, sold to traveling slavers, carried to a distant land, and he's made a slave. He is penniless, powerless, friendless, homeless, and robeless. And I will tell you this. I think your heart is revealed and your hope is forged when your life doesn't turn out the way that you had planned it. See, it's hard sometimes to trust Jesus, even when things are good, but when things are harder, that is when true hope begins to be forged. And so how do we become this, this people of hope? Number one, people of hope exercise control instead of resigning. I don't mean you try and control your entire life. I mean you actually just do something and not give up. POWs and hostages, when they looked at them and talked to them, they found that the most stressful aspect of their life was losing hope for their existence. The ones who gave up and died or didn't recover, what they did is they lost hope for their life. They found out that this hope was actually more important than their simple basic needs. The ones who triumphed, they reasserted a command and hope over their future. Instead of just becoming passive, they focused their attention on things within their control. So what could they do? Some of them would start uh, an exercise routine. Some of them would try to think of some verses they had when they were younger and try to memorize these Bible verses. Some of them would memorize stories. Some of them would invent games. Some of them, because there's bugs all over the place, apparently when you're in a concentration camp, they would take and they set all the bugs aside and they'd do a little census of the bugs. Well, I got four cockroaches and... Ten fleas, and, 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 they'd, and they'd make a little sense of them. Some of them found ways to communicate when they were told not to with secret signals. What they understood is that their bodies were captured, but their spirits were not. And so you, when you look at Joseph, Joseph is a prisoner. He's far from home. Go to Genesis 39. That's where Joseph's story actually continues. The writer of the book says this comment about Joseph. Genesis 39, verse 2. He says, The Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. He was in slavery, and yet he could face the future. He lost everything, but he was not powerless. He had hope. And this then begins to play out in the ingenuity that he shows in his Egyptian boss's house. He was not alone. The most important thing that you can ever remember in your life, that your life is not about you. It is about Jesus. And anything that comes into your life, if you are a believer, you will never face it alone. 
because Jesus will always be with you. This idea of being captured yet having hope by focusing on what you can focus on, this resounds all the way throughout Scripture. In Daniel 1.8 it says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Basically, Daniel is the guy. He is taken and hauled off into slavery. The only thing that he has control over is his diet. And so he does what he can. You get to the book of Acts. In Acts 4.18, it says, So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. The religious leaders take the apostles and they say, You're not allowed to talk about Jesus. But they're like, Hey, you're not the boss of me and you're not in control of the law, so we're going to preach about Jesus. They take control of what they can and they preach about Jesus. In Acts 16.25, it says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. Paul and Silas, they get arrested. They're in chains. They're in jail. What can they do? The only thing they can do, they start to sing. And all the prisoners are like, well, that's weird. Kumbaya, let's go. And they all start singing along, and so they do what they can do. Faith believes that with God we are never a helpless victim, ever, because our God goes before us. Joseph applies himself, even in slavery, to the task at hand. And as a slave, he pleases his master and he pleases God. Genesis 39, verse 6, it says, So he, that's the master, left all he had in Joseph's charge because he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Joseph doesn't quit. He doesn't lie down. He trusts God. And this sets Joseph up to be able to do some amazing and wonderful things by the people he can come into contact with living for God. I mean, what, what if he gave up? People would say, well, Joseph would have missed his destiny. Well, I don't know. I'll tell you that quitting is always easier than enduring. It's easier to storm out when you're upset than resolve a conflict. The enemy will always tell you that giving up looks like relief. And it is not relief. I mean, maybe you have a terrible marriage and you're thinking, I'm going to live in mediocrity my entire life unless I get a divorce. No. God calls us to do the hard work of restoration and redemption and reconciliation. That's why we did the Song of Solomon this whole 16 weeks before we started this series. Maybe, maybe you have a hard time with your money. Living on a budget's terrible and you always hear, you know, well, God wants us to also give to Him. And so you're like, but if I give to God, I can't go buy the new iPhone that's terrible. You know, I, 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 I need to do something with... And, and we do this. We think living on a budget is terrible, so I just won't give to these things, which I really should be giving to, and I'll just do this. It's always easier to give up. Maybe you think, well, my job's not what I thought. I, I just want to quit my job. I'm going to follow my heart. But say you have a spouse and kids, and you need to work your job. Maybe God has you in that job for a reason. The enemy will always tell you giving up looks like relief, and we are to be a people who continue to push and go forward. Because I will tell you, when you give up, it produces a pattern of giving up in us. Living without hope seems to just get easier and easier and easier. Friendships are hard. Gospel community is hard. Patience is hard. Jobs are hard. But growth happens when we resolve to work out a situation and trust God and not give up. By being faithful, you keep walking, even when the mountains just rear up right in front of you and did not know they were going to be there. Because what you discover in the midst of that is that the Lord is with you, just like he was with Joseph. Joseph continues to hope in God. You think, oh, that's so great, how wonderful for Joseph. But then what happens is he finds himself in even more trouble. Genesis 39, verse 7 says, And after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. This is, have sex with me. You know, I mean, I, this is, again, like every teenage boy's, I wish I had that job. No, you don't, all right? Number two, people of hope remain committed to Christ when tempted to compromise. Remain committed to Christ when tempted to compromise. 
I assume Joseph wrestles with temptation at this moment. I mean, maybe she looked like Mrs. Jabba the Hutt. You know, we, we don't know. But it's highly doubtful. Potiphar had a lot of money. We assume he has a very good-looking wife. And so Joseph is a slave. He's away from his family. He is in the depths of loneliness. He is all alone. He was totally tempted by this to have some intimacy with somebody again. Chapter 39, verse 8, that he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against who? God. And I sin against God. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. So she forces the issue. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Sometimes all you can do is run. This doesn't mean you run away from your problems. It means you're running towards Christ where your hope is. Sometimes you need to run. Anybody have a, a bug zapper at your house? Does it work? Yeah, they're kind of crazy. They're not going, oh, I love that sound. Zim. Like, yes. Less bugs in the world. All night long, bugs find You think a bug, at some point, would look at them and go, oh, look, all my relatives are dead in the pan. I probably shouldn't be flying towards this thing I- anymore. Maybe some of my desires are not for the right things. But no bug ever does that. Every bug, if they had a brain, they'd be like, oh, I'm strong enough to handle it. I can do it. Zim. And down into the pan. When we are hurt and we, are, we think that something dumb looks so attractive. C.S. Lewis writes this, We would think people are most vulnerable to temptation in seasons when their energy level and appetites are the highest. In fact, it is when they are in the valley, when we are struck by sadness and desolation, that we are in the most dangerous place. Problems for us a lot of times are like this blue light of sin. I'll tell you, when I argue with my wife and have all this misplaced anger, I become a jerk to everybody. Ask my friends. They, they, all, they all know that. If Joseph gave in, he would have destroyed his boss's trust. He would have betrayed God. And I, I don't think he would have missed his destiny. I think I would have taken, taken him kicking and screaming to his destiny where he was supposed to be. But it wouldn't have been the same. See, so Joseph runs. And again, I think he runs to God because it's the only place he can run where all of his hope would lead him. When you are alone, when you're disappointed, we need to run to God. You know, and, then, and, and then we were like, yay, Joseph does the right thing. This is so wonderful. What does Joseph get for doing the right thing? His robe is stripped off and it's used against him. Chapter 39, verse 13. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and he fled out of the house, she called the men of the household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. She's talking about her husband, so that must not be a good relationship as it is. He came in to lie with me and cried out with, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Oh. Used against him. You're like, this can't be. No, God's going to make the truth known. Mrs. Jabba the Hutt can't win. No. But Potiphar, her husband, goes on the warpath, sins, and sends Joseph to jail. Seems like more bad news. Look at chapter 39, verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And this is the amazing thing. We think, well, if God's with us, everything turns out okay. Not always. Not always. God doesn't spare his kids much, but we get to see that he is always with us. I think Joseph decides he would rather face life with God and have nothing than face life without him and have everything. Number three, people of hope find meaning and purpose when life makes no sense. When life makes no sense. Anybody know who Victor Frankel is? Anybody? 
He's like, <laughs> one, Eric, nice. Uh, Viktor Frankl is a guy who actually went through uh, the Nazi death camps. He was interned in those in Germany. And what he actually discovers is he makes some observations in this, that those who had no goals died. He also found that those who struggled for struggled and suffered for religious or political reasons survived, but with no, those with no strong convictions didn't fare as well. Suicide notes, he said, would usually say things like, I'm tired of life, I just want a way out. Julius Segal writes this, he says, Countless individuals beset by trauma report that their basic problem is an existence that is without meaning. What happens to Joseph when all these things start happening is he finds meaning in a simple way. He starts to live like Jesus calls believers to live, by helping other people. What happens is while he's in jail, there's a baker and a butler and Pharaoh gets mad at them and tosses them into jail. Joseph notices them, spends some time with them, gets to, gets to, gets to befriend them. And one day, Genesis 40, verse 6 and 7, when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in the custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? This is Joseph, the guy that's been betrayed and betrayed and betrayed, thrown into jail for a crime he did not commit, looks at somebody else and says, oh, what's troubling you? I mean, if, if this was you and me, we'd focus on ourselves and our own disappointment. I'm sad, don't bother me. Oh, I'm going to sit over here and wallow in my pain. You know, if I can make some, some hemp rope in this prison, I'd hang myself. That, that's what I'd do. But he looks around and notices other people face these problems too. Again, this is why we push gospel community, because everybody faces the problems that you do. And we can push through these in community, focus on who Christ is. Joseph looks and he realizes, this isn't how these guys plan on their life turning out either. And so he acts like Jesus and takes an interest in their lives. And by noticing these other people, it gives Joseph meaning in prison and also gives these guys a measure of hope. I think maybe Joseph's suffering was developing compassion in him. God was making him into who he needed to be. When he was a kid, the favoritism his dad showed him damaged his brothers, but it also damaged Joseph as well. Because, you know, when, when you're like the big cheese, you think you're so wonderful until someone cheesier comes along, right? And they're the, they're the big cheese. Maybe you're good at something and you think you're the best. You get real cocky until someone else comes along and they're better than you are. And so he becomes a slave and, and a prisoner. Some people will say, you know, well, you know, it was years as a prisoner and then years as a slave before Joseph was used. No, I think Joseph was used as a slave. I think Joseph was used when he was a prisoner. And he's used even more when he gets out a prison. Scott Peck writes this. He says, It is in this whole process of meeting and solving problems that life has meaning. It is only because of problems that we grow mentally and spiritually. It's for this reason that wise people learn not only uh, learn not to dread, but actually to welcome problems and actually welcome the pain of problems. This is one of the reasons why if you go in the military, they send you to boot camp. Boot camp is design, designed to bring you pain. Okay? They, they strip you down and build you back up. It brings loyalty and obedience. Last week with Peter walking on the water, what we looked at is that Jesus lets the disciples go out into this storm, and this, and this storm is beating the snot out of this boat before Jesus walks out to them on the water. Maybe Joseph also needs some controlled trauma in his life. Maybe you and I need some controlled trauma in our life. Because when Joseph wore his dad's robe, he could not commune with his brothers. He didn't know what he'd be capable of in hard times. He would never realize that God would actually be enough if he didn't lose everything. What you notice is where Joseph starts, he starts noticing his own big dreams and telling everybody his big dreams. And in the end, he notices other people in prison. His suffering gave him compassion and hope. My question for you guys is how compassionate and full of hope are you in your life? 
How compassionate and full of hope are your actions? Do you notice the downcast? Do you ask people when they're downcast? What's going on? Every word as a believer that you offer to other people either offers a little hope or kills a little hope. Do you express concern when you have nothing to gain? Now, I'm going to quickly bring this together because I know you're like, what's going to happen in the story? I'll quickly wrap up the story and we'll we'll finish this off. Uh, Basically, the the guys in jail with Joseph has dreams. Joseph interprets these these dreams with the hope that he would then get released. And they forget about him and he languishes in jail for another two years. But God's not done with him yet. What eventually happens a couple years later is Pharaoh has a dream. And nobody can interpret this dream. And so, and so one of the guys is like, oh, hey, I know this guy in prison. I should have remembered him two years ago because he helped get me out. But uh, I know. So they, so they bring Joseph in. Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams. He says, and this is what's going to happen. You're going to have terrible famine in your land. And this is what you need to do in order to make sure that people don't die and starve. You need to set these things up. So Pharaoh goes, okay. And he places Joseph in the position to do this. Genesis 41, starting in verse 39, he says, Pharaoh says, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. And what I think is really cool here is that this is because Joseph is now humble. Joseph isn't like, oh, yes, yeah, I was telling her about since I was a little kid. Did you see my robe? Because I need to put that back on. He's very humble now. And Pharaoh says, you shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took a signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, meaning he got another robe, and put a gold chain about his neck and he made him ride in his second chariot and they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. In the end, this famine spreads to where Joseph's the rest of his family is living and they come to Egypt to buy some grain so they don't die. And his brothers come, do not know it's Joseph, and they bow down before him, just like his dream said. But now Joseph isn't proud. Now Joseph is humble. And so Joseph welcomes them in. He feeds them. He takes care of them. At the end of Joseph's life, his brothers are still worried that he's going to exact retribution. And this is where the verse we first start up this morning comes from, Genesis 50, verses 19 and 20. This is Joseph's response to his brothers when they're still afraid. He says, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph, in the end, looks and says, "You know, It is God who did these things because he has a purpose and he has a plan, and that's where our hope needs to be. Doubt. Dallas Willard writes this. He says, I meet many faithful Christians who, in spite of their faith, are deeply disappointed in how their lives have turned out. Sometimes it is simply a matter of how they experience aging, which they take to mean they no longer have a future. But often, due to circumstances or wrongful decisions and actions by others, what they had hoped to accomplish in life, they did not. They painfully puzzle over what they must have done wrong or whether God has really been with them. I will tell you throughout the scriptures, God has always been with you. When your life doesn't turn out the way that you think, it's okay because you trust God, because He is your hope to take you where you need to be. People in much distress, they fail to see that their life is always in front of them, that God is a God of life and hope and our future, and He wants to pull us into our future. And too often we spend our lives looking at our life behind us rather than where God wants to take us. The significance many times we found in this type of person of hope that we become, because that is who God makes us into. Because our hope is in our great God and not in our own future. If you fast forward years and years, you get to the story of Jesus. Jesus' story is a lot, actually, like Joseph. Eventually, he's given a robe. They give it to him to mock him. They strip it from him. The crowds mock him. His friends abandon him. Peter denies him. Judas betrays him. The soldiers crucify him. He's laid in a tomb. You think, that's not the way the story should end, in a tomb. Is that disappointment or is it hope? Because three days later, while everybody else who put him to death is feeling good and all happy, 
Jesus rises. Hope rises. And we are told in Romans 8, 38, 39 that there is now nothing that can separate you and I from the love of God. There's a, there's a story. And since you're this service, I have enough time, I'm going to tell you about it. There's a book. I recommend you guys read it if you want to. It's, it's a story, so it's not like, oh, a theology book. It, it's, it's a story book. It's called Unbroken, True Story, about a guy named Louis Zamperini. And Lewis, he was an Olympic runner in the 30s, phenomenal athlete. I mean, he's got this amazing life in front of him, and he ends up going and serving in World War II. He gets shot down over the Pacific. He ends up on a raft for 47 days, 47 days in the middle of the ocean. Nobody has ever drifted on an ocean that long before and survived. He ends up getting rescued by a ship, but it turns out to be an enemy ship. And so he goes from that raft into POW camp. He suffers unspeakable torment. It's brutality and hatred and starvation. It's unspeakable. The suspense in the book is actually really good. You, know, you think, can, can he make it? Can he make it? Now, I, I don't want to spoil it for you if you haven't read the book, but he makes it. Okay, there you go. <laughs> it's only the first part of the book. Really. Okay. He comes home, and then you think, oh, okay, thank goodness, you know, that this, that everything's going to get better. But this is the part that just kills you. Because he comes home and you're thinking, happy ending, but his life falls apart. But now it falls apart from the inside. All the fear and the bitterness and hatred because of what people have done and tortured him. All this overwhelming sorrow at his buddies who have died. He starts drinking, and he can't stop drinking. The, the wife he is married to is a, is a fabulous, wonderful woman in desperation because she sees their marriage is going to end. She takes him to a meeting. And this is way back in the 40s, and there's this young preacher by the name of Billy Graham. I don't know if you guys ever heard of that guy. He tells a story about a Savior, dies on a cross, loves people, offers hope, can take all of our hurt and burdens and sorrows upon himself, and he rises from the dead to offer us new hope on Sunday. And then he asks, if anybody who's ready to, I want you to surrender your life to Jesus right now. And something inside Lewis, he's so angry and hurt and afraid and, and hard, and he just gets furious. He goes, oh, I'm not going to do that, and he storms out. Ah, see, not how he thought it was going to end, right? It's like, ah! They leave. His wife is totally desperate because their marriage is going to fail. So she talks to him and cons him to going back one more time. He says, I'll go back when he gives the invitation. I am not staying for that. And so, again, Billy Graham tells this story about this Jesus who dies, rises from the dead, offers hope, takes our burdens and sorrows upon himself, will walk with us into anything. And he says, if you've never done it, will you confess your sins to him? Will you surrender your life to him? And Lewis, again, he's, he's just furious and inside. He gets to walk out, but he can't. God grabs a hold of him and makes him stay there. And God reminds him that when he was sitting on that raft in the middle of the ocean, he remembers, he says, God, if you get me out of this, I will give my life to you. But he didn't. And he saw God as not getting out of that. And then all of a sudden, God changes his mind. He sees, no, God did get me out of that. So God holds him there. And finally, he just gives in. He says, all right, all right. And he surrenders himself to Jesus. And 60-odd years later, you can still hear this guy. He's, he's like 90 years old, and he's still giving little seminars about his life and what happened and what God has done to him. See, this is, this is a God of hope. This is a God who takes all the stuff that we can go through, and when we realize it and lay it at his feet, we transform into the people of hope that we are meant to be. Every week, you know, we, we talk about uh, communion and prayer and all this kind of stuff. You know, I do not want you guys to ever walk out of this room feeling like we do not give you a chance to know who Jesus Christ is. If you have never surrendered your life to Christ, there will be deacons and elders in the back. And we would love for you to talk to them and pray with them about who Jesus is.
Because, yes, we get together and worship God corporately together, but one of the main reasons we get together is we want people to know who Jesus Christ is. And so if you have never surrendered your life, and if you need hope, go and pray with them. We are going to worship God through communion. Uh, you take that cracker and you break it like Christ's body was broken for you and I. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice, reminding us of his blood that was shed for you and I on the cross so that we can actually have this redemption and hope and live a different life than we've ever known before. The band's going to come up, uh, the four of us anyway. <laughs> and, and we'll do a couple songs, and as we do, uh, take, take a few moments and think about what God has brought you through, maybe what you're in the midst of right now. And think about the places that God wants to take you into by trusting in Him. And it's not always, again, like you think it's going to be. It's not always going to be peaches and cream and roses, you know. Sometimes it's, it's despair and sitting on a raft for 47 days. And, but God's still coming and grabbing a hold of His children and bringing us home to where we need to be. I worship God through giving. There's offering boxes on the sidewall in the back. We give because God gives so much to us, so giving is simply part of our worship. So instead of passing a plate, we let you guys respond to what God has done and to give that way. There's food and stuff in the back. And go meet Jonathan Whitaker in the back and, and tell him his jokes fall flat sometime. You know, talk to him in the Welcome Center. Get to know some other people. Again, because we, we do that because we want you to get to know each other because we believe that God never intended for you and I to do life on our own. He intends for us to do it with him and in community with other believers walking to the places that he calls us to walk. So we want you guys to get to know other people. God is a God of hope. He calls us to be a people of hope. Even when everything looks like it's going to fall apart, He is a great God of hope. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would teach us as your people to learn how to live and to walk in the hope that you have so graciously given to us. Teach us to be a people who understand that we are not the beginning and end of our life, but you are. And when we think that things aren't going the way that we think they should, I ask that you would teach us to humble ourselves and trust you. To keep going forward when we feel like we just want to give up. To refuse to compromise who you've called us to be, even when we want to give up. To trust you so much more than we trust anything else in this life. And, Father, we ask that that would become infectious and other people would see the great hope that you continue to offer, even in the midst of sorrow and sitting on a raft for 47 days and being thrown into prison for something you didn't do. Father, for those in this room who are going through some very difficult times, I ask that you would continue to reveal yourself as the great God of hope. That everything that comes to us is sifted through your hands. And that you long to give all things purpose and meaning. That you are our wonderful maker. And that you are a wonderful maker. And that we would be those who trust you. We ask these things in your son's gracious and good name.